So it's, it, it probably feels like a year since we've been in our study in 2 Corinthians, but uh, we ha- we, uh, we're back and we only got a little bit to cover. 12 and 13, a lot of just kind of housekeeping stuff. I almost considered just finishing the book today, but I don't think I, if I'm being honest, I finished three chapters. So we're just going to do 11 today. We'll try to take 12 and 13 next week. And then I got a couple of pullout messages that we're going to do out of the Old Testament, which is going to get us to the end of May. Um, Pastor Dave is going to um, teach Titus, and then um, and then when he's done, that will be our last chapter and verse. Excuse me. Oh yes, 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 yes. Hey, let me share. Th- thanks, thanks, uh, Brian. Uh, before we get into it, let me share this with you guys. A little video. Pastor Isaac, um, our church on the missions trip, we bought them a car. I told you guys that last week, and so they did a special thing where. They, uh, the church prayed over the car, and, and he sent us a little video. I just got it this morning, so I want to share it with you guys. Pastor Isaac, this little video, um, to thank you guys for the gift. Greetings to everyone. Uh, this is Pastor Isaac from Calvary Chapel in Tebe. I take this chance to just greet all of you at Calvary Chapel Toweli. Uh, I want to thank <laughs> Pastor Chris and uh, Pastor Jero whom God spoke to to avail uh, resources uh, to buy this car. Uh, today we have received this car. It's a blessing to us to do ministry here, but also to be comfortable as we do the service of the Lord. So we thank you all who have uh, given, and more so uh, Pastor Chris, whom the Lord spoke to, to for being that voice. We say thank you, Pastor Jero, for being that voice. We appreciate this time. It's a blessing to us as a family. It's a blessing to us as a church. We thank you. And may the Lord God reward the works of your hands. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. I want to show us fancy socks. I wish they'd just show the car. Oh, maybe. There we go. Yeah, they drive on the right side there. <laughs> they got new rims and tires. It had uh, like low profile rims and tires on it. We need a bigger tire for the. Oh, it's a Highlander? I don't know what it is. Is that what a Cypress? Yeah, it's kind of like a Land Cruiser. Kind of. That's the way it looks, right? It looks like a totally Land Cruiser. There it is. Yeah. So one of the. One of the things that Pastor Isaac does, because Calvary Chapel in Tebby is actually one of the more established Calvary chapels. They've been there for a long time. They probably have more in facilities and stuff than a lot of the other churches in all of Africa do. So he hosts a lot of um, missionary work. And so it's very important for him to have a decent car that when the pastors come, when teams come, that he can get them around, take them to do the ministry and the work. So um, it was super important. And God just put it on my heart to, to do that. And I didn't have enough money, though, so then I had to, like, get Pastor Gerald to give me the rest of the money. But we made it happen, and uh, they got a brand-new car. All right, God's good. And, again, that's, that's, that's to you guys' credit. You know, that, that's to you guys' um, glory. All right, are we ready for First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 11? Do you guys remember anything about Second Corinthians, or has it just been that long? It's been that long. Okay, let me give you just a little bit of a recap. In chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is defending himself. Now, one of the things that's different about 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians had a completely different feel. Remember, 1 Corinthians 
he was uh, talking to the church and all the problems and the way they were um, doing church wrong and the way that they were fighting and, and on and on and on. Well, when we get to Second Corinthians, he's um, now defending his apostleship. He's defending who he is because after he planted the church and left, <laughs> groups would come in behind him, namely the Judaizers and other groups and teachers. And um, I'm sorry, guys. When I was in seminary, although I didn't go to seminary, when I was in Bible college, like seminary, second, they said when you have to drink water, you're supposed to make this super like profound point. And while the audience is like thinking about it and ooing and aahing, then you take a drink of water. You guys got to... Um, so Paul is defending himself and kind of gloves off in this chapter as these other groups were coming in behind him. Now, Paul warns that when we do ministry, we don't, we don't want to plant on another man's foundation. It's very easy. And unfortunately, as we plant churches in the United States, the, we, we have this 80-20 model where, um, you know, ideally you want to plant a church, 80% new believers, 20% is going to just be people that were already believers that come from other churches. That's healthy. 20%, God calls people, people move on. Darlene and Kevin are about to, they're believers. They're going to join a church here somewhere. And, um, and, and so you have that, no matter what, where you plant a church. But unfortunately, too many church plants want to go where a big ministry is established and, and plant a church right across the street. And then, and then they've been there and they have 200 people, but 180 of those people the week before were just in a different church. And they're not really making a difference for the gospel. And unfortunately, just too many um, pastors and those that are sent out, they, they don't want to go to the hard places. You know, for Lydia and I, when, when God called us, we're like, we definitely didn't want to do that. We wanted to go to somewhere hard. I remember the story of Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb at 80 years old, Joshua said, give me the place where the giants are. Give me the mountain where, where, the, where the Nephilim are. I want to go there. I don't want to go where it's easy. I want to go where God has to show up and do miracles. I want to go where God has to show up and do something that I can't do. And that's always the place that we've tried to be as a church. You know where's a good place to be as a Christ follower? Is standing on the edge of the, of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army bearing down. Because what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. That's the old, like, put your head between your legs and kiss it goodbye because you're going to die. And, and, and that's the place that you want to be because in that position, there's only one way that things are going to go well. And that is that God's going to show up in your situation and do miracles. That God's going to show up in your life and, and, and do something. And so it's, it's an amazing place to be. You know, when I first started teaching as a, as a teaching pastor, you, you, you find yourself telling other people's faith stories. And I'm telling all of Pastor Gerald's faith stories and how God moved him and how he stepped out in faith. And I remember asking God, saying, God, I, I, I want to start telling my own faith stories. Give me opportunity to, to step out in faith and do things that I can tell my own faith stories. And in your life and in my life, as we just step out in the Lord, step out in your faith, step out and God's going to do amazing things. God says to the nation of Israel that everywhere you put your foot to that I've given you, but you have to step out. You have to put your foot. You know, it's like that imaginary where you, there's, there's a cliff and there's no bridge and the guy steps out and as he steps out, a step appears. And now he's a little more confident because he took the first step. And then he takes the second step. And guess what happens in life as you take those steps of not knowing? It gets easier and easier. And every step gets a little bit easier to walk out and step out in the Lord. But you know what? So many times 
um, again, with these church plants. People didn't do that. And so these guys would just come in behind Paul and they would, you know, they, they were just perverting the gospel. We see it all over. When we were in Entebbe, we were in Kampala, Uganda, and they're building this huge high rise. And we asked Pastor Isaac, what is that? And he says, that's a cult that's come into town. And they have all kinds of money. And they're fleecing the flock of God. And they're faking miracles. And they're drawing people. And somehow they got the government to agree with what they're doing. And the government likes them and, and gives them a pass. And it's absolutely the enemy of the gospel and what's true. And so Paul here again, um, as he plants this church and he's gone, and then he has to deal with these. So in this chapter and in 10, he was defending himself. In 11, a little bit more of that. So let's just jump into it. Chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. So I think he's just kind of setting them up that he's about to do something he normally doesn't do. Do you remember what Paul said about his life? He said, listen, I don't want to talk about anything except for Christ and him crucified. I don't want to boast about anything except for Jesus. Who am I to boast? Who, what, do, what do I have to boast in? You know, I, 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 humility is a good, a good option because I don't have a heaven to send you to. I, I, I'm not Jesus. I didn't die on a cross for your sins. And Paul understood that, that in himself, he, he wanted only to bring glory to God. He wanted only to boast in Jesus and talk about Jesus. But here in this chapter, because of his enemies, he has to a little bit stoop to their level in order to, to defend himself. And there's a wisdom, you know, a lot of times... It's not necessary to defend ourselves. A lot of times as people are talking, doing what they're doing, it's, it's much better just to let them say what they say and not defend yourself and let the truth come out. But I think there comes a time where, where it is necessary to defend yourself. And here, Paul, um, for the people's sake and for their salvation, for their walk, he says, I'm going to um, defend myself. So bear with me, verse 1, as I get through this. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to a husband that I that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. So Paul um, fancies himself to the Corinthians as a father, as a shepherd, as somebody who loves them. And listen, if, if somebody's leading you in ministry, if somebody's leading you in, in your faith, you definitely want somebody who treats you and loves you as a child, somebody who is that father figure, that shepherd figure. The heart of a shepherd is something that God gives as gifts to folks. I believe that, you know, when I was a kid before I knew Christ, uh, I grew up in, 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 on the west side of L.A., and, um, and, and I, even I can, I can remember from the time I was like just a teenager where I, was, I had a little different heart than even some of my friends. I was always the one trying to break the fights up and trying to – I always loved people. My house was always full of, of the neighborhood kids, and it was like looking back now, I can see that even before I knew Christ, God had already built into me a heart of a shepherd. And that, that, that I care genuinely about people. And Paul, here, he loves people, and he, he fancies himself as a father to the Corinthian church. You know, he told them earlier, you have many teachers, but not many fathers. That's one thing for somebody to teach, and it's another thing for somebody to love the people that, that they're invested in. And so Paul is, is telling them, basically, I love you, and I'm a father, and I care for you. And I, he, he raised them up. He led them to Jesus. And, and, and as Christ followers, they're now the bride of Christ. And you're the bride of Christ. And as a bride, Paul's saying to this, this church, he's saying, I want to present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. It's an example of a, of a Jewish father who, who has to present his daughter um, in a Jewish wedding as a virgin. And, and Paul says, I want to present you to Christ as the body of Christ as a chaste virgin. 
I want to teach you and prepare you that, you know, and this, this example of, of us as the bride of Christ, it started way back in the Old Testament. Do you remember the prophet Hosea? Now, there's one ministry. Not, not I shouldn't say there's one ministry. There's probably hundreds of ministries I don't want no part of. But this would have been one of them. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament. And his ministry was God called him to take a wife. And then his wife went and started having affairs on him and cheating on him. And God came to Hosea and he said, I want you to go and bring her back to you and, and make her your wife again. And then, and then he would go and get her and bring her home. And she would come home pregnant and she would have a child. And God said, name that child, not my kid. So Hosea said, that's not my kid. And that's what he named the first kid. And then she would go out and she would, she would whore again. And, 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 and God would say to Hosea, I want you to go get her and bring her home. And he, and he went through this process of bringing his wife back. And she would come home pregnant these three times from somebody else's kid. And he would not only raise these kids, but he would, he would bring his wife back. And God said, this is what the nation of Israel has done to me. That they've gone out whoring against other gods. And, and, and that, um, you know, that, that, that for us. And what are the things? And really the reality is we have things. And we can have things in your life that are other gods. One of these young men in Uganda that I got to lead to Jesus. And by, just by the grace of God, you know, I think there were some genuine conversions to Jesus in the hearts of these young men. And one of them, he's the captain of the football team. I think I might have told this story last week, but it's good anyways. But he, he pulled me aside after and he said, Pastor, he said, I want to be a professional footballer. He said, and, and I have so many people here that are telling me that I'm, I'm just a, you know, nobody from a slum and that I'll never make it anywhere. I'll never get out of here and that I'll never become a professional football player because of where I come from. And he said, I want to prove to them that, that with God I can do this. He was the one that um, when I said, I asked him, if you want to become a born again believer in Jesus, raise a hand. And people kind of few people started raising hands and he went like this put two hands way up in the air. And then I started to give the altar call. And before I could even say, okay, now come, he was already up halfway down the aisle to come. He was just eager. And he said, I want to be a professional footballer. And I want to show people that with God, I can do this. And I told him, I said, I said, you, you can do this with God, but God's not going to bless it if football becomes your idol. And if you put football before God, and, and if you think God is a genie in a bottle that you rub so that he, that he can make you a professional footballer, it's not going to work. Because it's an idol in your life. It's another God that you're putting before God. Your dream to be a professional footballer. What is it in your life, in my life? Are there things, if we're being honest, that, that can become idols that we put before God? And those things we just got to be aware of. We got we to ask God to, to take those, that God is always first. But I did tell this young man, and I wanted to be encouraging to him. And I told him, listen, but God can bless you to become a professional footballer. But you've got to keep God first. I said, what if God told you he doesn't want you to be a footballer, he wants you to be a pastor? What then? He's like, oh, I'll do it. So that was cool. He had a good attitude about it. And I said, what if God wants you to be a missionary? Or God wants you to clean bathrooms? Or what if God wants you to, whatever God wants you to do. King David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents with the wicked. And so, um, so just encouraging him in that. In that um, so Paul is saying, I wanted to present you again as chaste virgins to um, Christ. And again, that's what we are, a bride of Christ. So as a bride, here's, here's just a simple, simple Bible truth. Be faithful to your groom. Put him first. Have no other gods before him. Amen? In verse 3 it says, 
But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, there, there's so much I could preach out of, cha- out of verse 3, but let, let's just try to pick a couple things. Now, first of all, he talks about he, he's afraid that Satan is going to deceive him, deceive them like he deceived Eve um, by his craftiness. Is, is Satan crafty? Listen, Satan has been at it a lot longer than you have. Okay? He's, he's got thousands of years of experience at destroying lives. And you know, here's the thing about Satan we have to understand. Well, first of all, the Bible, what, is, what did Jesus say? John chapter 10, Jesus said that Satan is a liar, a thief, and he only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And, and Paul's going to tell us here, not only is he a liar and a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but Paul's going to tell us that he can masquerade, he can disguise himself as an angel of light. So maybe he doesn't have to come as a drug addiction in your life. Maybe he doesn't have to come as a porn addiction. Maybe he comes as an angel of light. And, and so Satan, what's crafty about Satan is that he has a specific temptation for every one of you. You know the temptation that he's going to use in my life? It's not going to work in your life. Those things don't tempt you. Those things are not the things that are going to get you off track. And the things that he's going to use in your life may not fit somebody next to you. But Satan has a specific plan to derail your life, and you have to be on your guard. You have to know that, that he's not given up. You know, for some, I think, you know, I'll try to be careful. I think some who live very good lives, religious lives, but they don't know Jesus. Very, very good on the outside. You know, I had somebody ask me one time, how come, how come they live such good lives to certain people? You know, everything seems really troubleless in their lives. Like good jobs, nice family, kids do what they're supposed to do, they behave themselves, they go off to college, they get married, they start businesses, and it just seems like they have no trouble. I said, why in the world would Satan trouble them? Why in the world would he disrupt what, he, what is already working? He's, they're already on the broad road that leads to destruction. And so the last thing he wants to do is, is to mess with that. And, and, and that particular deception of Satan is, is almost disguised in blessing. You know, where I come from, that wasn't the, the, the deception of Satan. You know, my uncle, he was an LAPD sheriff for 40 years, LAPD officer for 40 years, and in the 70s he did a footbeat on Skid Row. He wore them little shorts. They wore them little shorts in those days. And he would walk the footbeat on Skid Row. And so every time we went to a Dodger game, we'd always say, Uncle Jerry, Uncle Jerry, take us down to Skid Row. And so he would drive through Skid Row and tell us all of his war stories from the days back of being a cop. And, you know, it's people in cardboard boxes addicted to heroin and, you know, and, and just the, the complete debauchery and lifestyles. And in that place, Satan's plan for them is much different. And it's effective there. And he has a plan. He has a plan for each one of our lives. And Paul says, I'm, I'm worried that Satan might deceive you. And so how do we, um, you know, one of the things that Jesus said in, in, in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, the first thing that Jesus says is he says, I don't want you to be deceived. And all these things about the end times in life, the first concern that Jesus had was I don't want you to be deceived. You know, here in Utah, I think my biggest uphill battle that I've had in, in ministering in this area um, that's different from where I come from is that nobody trusts me. I'm, I'm completely different than any, anywhere else. Back home, you know, it, it's different. It's a different battle. Churches like, like evangelical churches like this are a dime a dozen, and, you know, people are more familiar with the pastors and the style of ministry, and here it was completely different. 
and it takes a long time. I've got to build trust, and I really work hard to build people's trust. And, and, and part of that is that, you know, number one, I've got to take myself off of any kind of pedestal or any kind of you don't need me. I don't ever want to draw disciples unto myself. You need Jesus. My job is always to point you all to Jesus, straight to Jesus. You don't need me. It also helps cut my counseling load down, too. Because you don't feel like you need to know something that I know. If you know the Holy Spirit, then you know somebody who knows way more than I do. You go talk to him first. And talk to Jesus first. What you need is in Jesus. And then, and then in that, that, that you have, listen, this is kind of deep, but I want to kind of get through this real quick. You have a personal responsibility not to be deceived. That's not on me. Even if I'm the deceiver, which I'm not, even if I'm the one who deceived you, when you stand before God, that's not on me. You have a personal responsibility biblically to not allow yourself to be deceived. And how do you do that? Simply. Read your Bible and pray every day. Come on. Read your Bible and pray every day. That's a good start. Okay? Just be in the Word. Know Jesus. Spend time with Him for yourself. Because He's going to walk you through the deception. He's going to walk you through the truth. And, and, and so again, there is that personal responsibility that we all have. And Paul is concerned with that. In verse 4, Paul says, For if he who comes preaches... Uh-oh, look at your neighbor and say, Another Jesus? Question mark. Okay, now look at your other neighbor, the one you chose second, and say, another Jesus? Hey, is, is it possible that there exists another Jesus? Okay, it's a, it's a kind of a trick question. The answer I was looking for is absolutely yes, it is. Because it wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't possible, right? There is another Jesus. Now, the, the other Jesus and then the right Jesus. Is it important between the two, like having the right one or another one? Or as long as you have some form of Jesus, you're good. Which is it? Is it a matter of heaven and hell? It's that serious. Jesus dealt with it. Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 7 and verse 30, 37, he says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Listen. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How many of you guys want rivers of living water to flow out of your heart? Amen? Just one promise of Jesus. Look, the Greek word is torrents. Torrents of living water coming out of your life. Simply just, just in Jesus. And then he says, but... Oh, he says, he who believes in me has water, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit, why did I miss the verse... On the last day of the great day of the feast, if any thirst come to me and drink, he who believes in me, oh yeah, it is very He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, Jesus said. So, so Jesus even understood the deception that was going to come. If you get on an airplane today and you're headed for the Hawaiian Islands on vacation with your with your spouse, and and the the pilot has the the the, the whatever direction set, and he's just one degree off. By the time you get to Hawaii, you're going to be 400 miles off the Hawaiian Islands and miss your vacation. Just one degree off. Again, Satan understands it doesn't have to be 180 degrees in a lie. It just has to be a little off. So he's never tried to, maybe with some circles and small groups it works, but Satan really doesn't try to say Jesus doesn't exist. 
Jesus, you know, Jesus wasn't who he said he was. He just changes a little bit of who Jesus is and it's enough because it becomes another Jesus. And it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell that you have the right Jesus. You know, the, the number one thing about Jesus that comes um, attacked by, by the different isms and schisms and cults that are out there in the world, does anybody know? Number one thing, the deity of Jesus is, is that he is, is God and not God. When Thomas wasn't there, remember when Thomas missed the, the, the post-resurrection meeting and, and then Thomas came to the next one and Jesus showed up and Thomas was talking trash in the last one. He said, oh, I don't believe you guys. I didn't see Jesus. I wasn't there, man. Until I put my hands in his holes, I won't believe. And then he looks over and Jesus is standing there like, okay, homie, go ahead. Put your, put your fingers in the holes. And Thomas looked at Jesus and he said, my Lord and my God. And on and on and on. You know, if there was a there was a bomb here in the middle of the sanctuary there, and you guys all froze and were scared, but not me. I jumped into action. I was going to save everybody. And I run into the back, and I get my oldest son, Luke, back there with his head down on his phone. And, and, and I bring him over, and I throw him on the bomb, and then we all get out of the way. And Luke takes the bomb, but we're all safe. What would you guys think of me as a father? Wow, you jumped into action. You're a hero. You took your son and you threw him on the bomb. You saved all of our lives. Is that what you guys would think? Hopefully you'd be beating the, you know, it'd be a, be a what do they call them, the block uh, pillow party? I forget what it's called. <laughs> yeah, something where I'm in the middle and you guys are beating me up because I just, what kind of father am I? A good father does what? He throws his son on the bomb? What does a good father do? Throws himself on the bomb. And listen, if you make Jesus anything other than God himself, then you make a father who threw a son on the bomb, and that's not a loving father. Jesus has to be God, that God himself came out of heaven and died on a cross. And as soon as you diminish the place of Jesus, even one degree, you're committing blasphemy and you got another Jesus, and you're guilty of, of hellfire and damnation. And then you can live your life, and you can do all things in Jesus' name that you want, but unfortunately, one day you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to say, man, I prophesied in your name. I, give, I did good works in your name. I did this in your name. And Jesus is going to look at you and he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you because you had the wrong Jesus. And so it is important. It is important. It's the burden that we have as we you know, want to share with folks. And the, and the reality is that it's just the truth that, that Islam has a form of Jesus that's not our Jesus. The LDS Church has a form of Jesus that's not our Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses have a form of Jesus that is just not our Jesus. It's not the Jesus that in John chapter 7, Jesus said, it's the, it, you, you believe in me as the scripture has said, it's a different Jesus. And so here Paul warns us. I think one a little bit more clear where Paul is really concerned with this topic. If you just turn to the right one page or two, you're going to come to Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 1, um, Paul is, is discussing this, this very topic. And in Galatians 1, he puts it pretty clearly. And he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And so again, Paul would plant a church and, and people were getting saved. And they were, they were getting saved in the simplicity of the gospel. And then Paul would leave and others would come in with another gospel and other things and 
and, and, and people were so soon switching. And Paul said, I marvel how soon you're ready to leave the grace of God and return to the bondage of legalism and the law of Moses. And then he says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Isn't there a group out there that claim they have another gospel? Don't they call it another gospel? Can they read? <laughs> Woo! Okay, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you that we have preached to you, let him be anathema. That's pretty strong language. A, a, a curse, when Paul says a curse there, the Greek word is anathema. It is the strongest curse there is in the Bible. Paul is condemning them to hell for eternity in that term, anathema. And if anyone preaches another gospel to you, even if an angel of light comes to you. Do you, do you know how Islam started? About 630 B.C.? No, A.D., I'm sorry. Muhammad was alone in a cave and an angel of light appeared to him and gave him another revelation. And he came out of that cave and with this revelation, he wrote a book called the Quran. Now, this is very parentheses because Muhammad probably was illiterate and didn't actually write the book, but he, he, he receives this revelation from an angel. A holy book comes out of it and people follow him according to this revelation that the angel gave. Okay? How did, how did the LDS church start? Joseph Smith was in a cave or in somewhere by a tree in a forest. An angel came to him, revealed revelation to him. He wrote a book and people follow it. The, the testimonies of Muhammad and Joseph Smith are identical. Go, go study the two and the hairs on the back of your neck will stand up when you realize that it's the same exact story 1,200 years apart one for Muslims and another one for white people in the United States. One, you know, it's, 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 it's the same deception packaged in a different way. And it's an angel that brings it. You know, all right, I got to be careful. I'm trying to be careful. You guys know me. I don't, I, yeah, I try, I try not to be needlessly offensive. And I don't want to offend anybody. I know most of you guys have LDS backgrounds. I'm just telling you the truth of what the Word of God says. So then he says, verse number nine, I'm still in, in Galatians. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a second time anathema, accursed. For I do not persuade men or God, and I do not seek to please men, for I still please men. I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Okay? So um, if anyone preaches any other gospel than what we heard, you know what we believe? And I don't know how well... We, we do it. I, I, I want to be careful in my boast, but I do want to say this. We believe that the Christianity that we practice is the same Christianity that the apostles in the first century practiced. It's, it's the same, now maybe not obviously the same details and, 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 and the, the functions they had and the practical issues they were dealing with with the one church or one body living together and those things, but we practice the same Christianity that the apostles in the first century practiced, the same Christianity that's been handed down from Jesus to you and I today. And, and the word of God is all we need for that revelation. And we don't need another gospel. We don't need an angel of light. Because the Bible is very clear when it says that Satan can appear as an angel of light. So how would you know? If an angel of light appeared to you, that would be pretty, pretty dope. Not if it was Satan, I guess. That wouldn't be too dope. But 
If an angel appeared to you, which, which angels appear, good angels appear in the Bible many times. They will again to John and other places. But, but the hard part would be you just wouldn't know. And how would you know? John tells us, test the spirits. But you know what the good thing is, you guys? You know what we have that's crazy? Better than an angel of light appearing to you in your living room while you're sitting in the jacuzzi talking about, hey, I got something cool to tell you. You have it right here. You have the word of God. You have it in your lap. You have it in your hands. And it's, it's the truth. And it'll lead you in everything that you need for godliness and, and, in, and in truth. Better even than if an angel of light came to you um, to do that. And so, again, let's, let's go back to uh, 2 Corinthians. We're trying to jam. we got four verses already and ten minutes left. Verse 4 says, For if we come, if, he, come, if he, he who comes preaches another gospel whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And so Paul, again, he's in context, he's telling them, listen, you guys are putting up with these, these false preachers that are coming in after me, and they're bringing other truth that I didn't bring to you. You guys are putting up with this stuff. Why do you put up with this nonsense? And then he goes on, he says in verse 5, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am un- untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all these things. You know, it's so crazy to me. that Paul, the, Through Corinthians, the Apostle Paul didn't have a great reputation as a great orator. You would think this guy would be like the greatest orator the world has ever seen. First of all, he was without a doubt, hands down, the greatest mind God ever created. The Apostle Paul. Read Romans and tell me different. I mean, there's no way. Like, this guy was it. Like, God gave him a unique position, the greatest mind ever God ever created. And so you would think, but I think God had to keep Paul humble, too. They said that his appearance was really weird. He's kind of nerdy looking. His nose was jacked up. His eyes would water all the time. He was short. And his back hunched a little bit. And I think God did some things to keep this guy humble. But, but he apparently... He wasn't the greatest orator, and when he got up behind the pulpit, he didn't necessarily have. But man, when it came to just knowing the truth and knowing Jesus and writing and giving us the Word of God, of course, there was no greater Christian in human history than the Apostle Paul. And nobody, um, I should say, nobody used of God greater than this one man who writes over half of the New Testament. And he says, um, so even though I'm untrained in this, I'm not inferior to any of the other apostles, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. Now they were coming in, they were saying, Paul's preaching the gospel free of charge because he ain't worth anything. He's so simple. Well, I forgot that, but I guess the Holy Spirit wanted me to move on. But there's a ver- in verse 3, I said there was 10 things I could preach. There's a verse there about the simplicity of Christ. I want you to maybe go back this afternoon and camp on that a little bit. I didn't quite touch it. I'm going to move on. But the gospel of Jesus Christ in its simplicity is, is so powerful. It is just simple. Just simple grace. Now, I want to be careful with it in the simplicity of Christ. Your salvation is simple for, on your end. Obviously not simple on Jesus' end and what he did on the cross to pay for your salvation. But it is true. They came to Jesus and they said, what is the work of, of God? What can we do that we can do the work of God? And what did Jesus say? What is the work of God? To believe on him whom he sent. Is it that simple? The work of God is to believe in Jesus? Yeah. Don't forget that, right, Jesus? But but the simplicity. Now listen, I, I never want to teach 
a, a conversion or a salvation that doesn't cost you anything. There's not a cost to discipleship. I think it's one of the biggest problems in the church in America today is that we're, we're, we're preaching a gospel where, oh, you just ask Jesus in your heart when you're in fourth grade at, at Bible camp and then you live like hell the rest of your life, but you'll go to heaven. There's a cost to discipleship. And for every one of you, that, that if you're a Christ follower, there's something in your life that, that shows that, that proves that. If you were being tried by, a, by, a, by your peers, by a jury of 11, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of your Christianity? Is there some evidence? There has to be evidence in your life. You know, the example I use is, you know, the guy that says, oh, I'm the world's greatest soccer fan. And you say, oh, wonderful. You love soccer. Yeah. Do you, do you watch all the games on TV? Oh, no, no. I've never actually seen a game on TV, but I'm the world's greatest soccer fan. Oh, you must just go to all the events live then. Uh, no, I've actually never been to a live event. Oh, oh, well, maybe you just play it all the time. 24 hours, seven days a week, you just play soccer. That makes you the world's greatest soccer fan. Uh, no, I don't own a soccer ball. I've never played soccer. What in your life makes you the, the world's biggest soccer fan besides just the confession that you made? Nothing. There's no evidence that says you're the world's greatest soccer fan. And as, as a Christian, if you claim that you're a Christ follower, then you go to the games. You watch them on TV. You play. There's something in your life on that evidence. All right. Moving back to verse 6, 7, um, free of charge. So Paul didn't charge him. He says, I robbed, verse 8, other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you, and indeed in, in need, I was burdened to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. And so, you know, that, that's just part of ministry that Paul at many times was bivocational. And that's what he's telling them, that I, I took a job outside of the church, and he was a tent maker. And he would go and he would plant a church, and when the church was young and and not big enough to support him or the ministry, or if he just felt like, as it was here in the Corinthian church, that it was better for him not to take anything from them because they just weren't spiritually ready to handle that, and that his, his, his motive was love and, and being a father and caring about the people and sharing the gospel. So he decided in the Corinthian church just not even to take a salary at all. And he says, I, I, I preached to you for free, and I burdened other churches, and other ministries were helping support me so that I can minister to you for free. Because it's never about the money. You know, the gospel it can't be about the money. If you're young in here and you want to be a pastor, you want to grow up and be in the ministry, you understand it's not about the money. But we, we do have a different philosophy as pastors. I'll drive the broke down car here. You can drive the Ferrari. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to be driving the Ferrari and you're going to be driving the broke down car. Because I'm living my life for the next. And here you get 70 years in that Ferrari. And in heaven, I'm going to get 70 billion years. And so I'm making a better deal but I'm living my life for the next. You know, when we first came to Utah, we planted this church. I, I worked at Walmart Distribution Center for three years because, you know, the church couldn't afford me. And I had been a staff pastor where I left, and, and it was good. It felt good. And it actually was administered to the church, too, that it wasn't. I didn't come here for money. I didn't come here to make money or be money. Josh just moved here, and Amber moved here. Josh is working full-time. Amber is working. And they're both serving here in our church. But in order to make it, they're, they're working. They're, they're serving God that way. And so... Um, we have some other young couples in, in Bible college right now that we're uh, recruiting to come out, that are thinking about coming out, praying about coming out after they graduate this summer. And same thing with them. When they come, they're gonna, there's going to be a season where they're going to work. You know, as far as Josh is concerned, depending on what God does, but someday I'd like to, like to hire Josh to, to be a staff pastor and where he, you know, he doesn't have to work full time. But there, there is a season where we're willing to do that and willing to, to give of ourselves because it's not about money. 
that's about the call of God on our lives. And then in verse number 10, he says, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Acacia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. So again, what motivated Paul? Love, right? And and that's the evidence that Paul shows, is that his motive for what he did was love. And again, for all of us, in what you do, let your motive be love. And if you love people, you know the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So true. Not cliche. It's just the reality. Love people first. What is the greatest commandment? Love God and love people. Right? Jesus understood that. Jesus didn't say the greatest commandment was to know the Bible like the back of your hand. It's good to do that, but it's not the greatest commandment. To have perfect doctrine. To know all the facts. No, it's to love. First is love. And Paul, is, again, is reminding them that, that his motive is love. Hey, I think we're just going to make it through verse about 15 today. So let's invite the worship team. You guys are going to close us in a song. Have them come up. And then by the time I round up 15, we'll close. And it says, so Paul's motive, again, verse 11, was love. Verse 12, he says, but what, do, what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So, Again, are there deceivers out there? We had, when I, was, when I was growing up, it was, I don't know what it is, what it was, where you grew up. Where I grew up, it was Channel 40. It was called TBN. Oh, my gosh. Some of these whack jobs on this channel. When I was in Bible college, we used to play a game. And we would, we would, take, we would write down like 30 seconds, a minute, minute, 30 seconds. Then we get a stopwatch. And then we put it on Channel 40 and start the stopwatch. And we'd all bet how long it would be before the first mention of money or how long it would take before someone who was on that channel was asking for money. And it was never very long. It was never more than a minute before the topic came up of asking for money. And, um, and the deceivers, again, they're out there. And, and we have to be on our guard. The easiest way, the best way to be on your guard is to know the truth. Know the Word of God for yourself. Be a student of the Word. You know, for bankers, how they teach bankers to, to spot a counterfeit they don't study counterfeit money. There's millions of hundreds of different ways to counterfeit money. They study the real thing. If you know the real thing, backwards and forwards, when you see a counterfeit, you'll recognize it as not the real thing. And so know the word of God. Know Jesus. And so Paul here again is, is warning them that these guys were coming and they were coming into the Corinthian church after Paul. They weren't willing to go somewhere where it was hard, somewhere where they could start a church in their, um, and, and, and do ministry for themselves. They'd rather come in and and, and fleece the flock of God behind Paul. And he says, verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Verse 14, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Okay? So that's Bible. Just know that's true. That, that, that Satan has that uh, ability. And, and listen, if Satan could, has this little trick he can do. He can transform himself into an angel of light and deceive you or deceive someone. Do you think like from Adam and Eve to today, about 6,000 years, that Satan's had this little trick in his pocket? Do you think he'd want to use it once or twice? (laughs) Do you think he's just kept it? He's never done it. I'm pretty sure that he's used this, this trick in his life once or twice. And then it says in verse 15, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, 
whose end will be according to their works. So a little note, it's not only Satan that can do it, it's all the demons. So, so any of the demons can, can appear as, as something good. What do you guys think about UFOs? You guys believe in UFOs? I'll do counseling for you afterwards if you do. No, I'm just teasing. Sometimes I think that, that some of these UFOs, sightings and these things that are, by the way, not extraterrestrials from a foreign planet, that just doesn't fit, but um, could be demons. Could be demonic forces that are transforming or are doing weird things like that. But, but just know that it's out there, that, there's, that the demons will and can deceive. So on that great note, let's stand. And end. Hey, as always here in uh, in our church, we we want to give everybody an opportunity each Sunday to get their hearts and their lives right with Jesus Christ. Josh and Amber and uh, Dave, um, Kevin and Darlene, you guys want to come up today? Your last Sunday, folks want to see you. All right, fine, sinners. The holy, the holy pastor Dave will come up in your stead. I'm just kidding. Hey, we'd like to give you an opportunity. We don't want to see anybody who's come not have an opportunity to get your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first part of becoming a Christ follower is simple. The simplicity of the gospel is very simple. Again, we don't, we don't teach that there's no cost on your part becoming a Christ follower to continuing your faith. There, there is a cost. The cost of discipleship. And if we teach a cheap grace and Fortunately, we just weaken the church, we weaken the body of Christ, and we do a disservice. But the first part has to start somewhere. And the first part is just very simple. It's just simply believing in Jesus. And, and the simplest way I can explain it that's true, it's just saying yes to Jesus. I saying yes to Jesus, to be my Lord, to be my Savior, admitting I'm a sinner, knowing that I need a Savior, that I can't on my own get to heaven, that the blood of Jesus Christ is necessary. This is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. So if you want to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity. For many of you, as I know, as I look around the room, you're already born again believers in Jesus Christ. And there's no need for you to get saved again. But maybe this morning it's just a time to rededicate your heart, rededicate your life, or just say, hey, there's some junk in my life that I want to clear up. You can tell that to God. And so let's pray together. If you close your eyes and bow your heads. And then after we get done praying, if God touched your heart, you need prayer if you just want to come up we really encourage you highly encourage you to take opportunity to come forward during this last song and have the pastors and leaders pray for you tell them if you ask jesus in your heart for the first time so they can encourage you and get you on the right track but will you guys pray together with me let's pray together as a church family dear lord jesus please come into my heart be my lord and savior i'm a sinner in need of a savior i confess my sins I ask Jesus to wash me in the blood. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. And I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I come before you and I thank you, Lord, for each and every person that's in here. And Father, if somebody prayed that prayer today for the first time, Lord, I pray to God that you would continue to work in their hearts as they say yes to Jesus. Father, I pray for those of us that are born-again believers in Jesus. Lord, I pray, God, for just a a renewing, an excitement of walking with Jesus. 
Lord, a realization of, of just wanting to be obedient and in your presence every day. Father, a desire to go deeper in reading your word and praying every day to fellowship and commune with Jesus. I pray, Father, if those things that are in our lives that are clouding our relationship, God, that you would remove those, those idols, those things in our life, those struggles, those sins, those weights which so easily ensnare us. And Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this place. And Lord, that now as we sing this last song, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move on hearts. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.